Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Thank you, guys. Um, I appreciate the introduction, Derek. Um, first, a little introduction about myself. I am a sophomore, as Derek alluded to, psychology major. Um, I am the spring break head, small group leader, a couple other things, probably. Um, maybe you've seen me, maybe you haven't. Um, if you haven't, come say hi. I'm pretty friendly most of the time. Um, it is CCF tradition to do a little introduction about your family. Um, so... <laughs> Okay. No, you're good. You're good. Okay. So top left, my brother and I, I am taller than him. He just graduated. Um, that's fine. I'm not stronger than him. He was a college athlete. He's a cool guy. Love him. Um, bottom left, my mom, my brother and I, my mom is the best mom in the whole world. Sorry. If you get up here, you can say that. Um, but I'm up here now. So she's the best mom. Um, middle is me, my brother, my grandpa, and my dad. Um, bottom right is devilishly handsome me and my mom unsuspectingly taking a picture. And then top right is the most famous picture in my family. I am Batman, surprise. All the movies were about me. Um, but I'm leaving out one very important member of my family, as you saw. Move on to the next slide, please. This is Ruger. He is a 13-year-old beagle. He's the cutest dog. Um, he's the goodest boy. Um, I love him with all my heart. He's gonna live forever, hopefully. And so, yeah. That's Ruger, he's the best. It is also CCF tradition to have multiple titles for your sermon. So I have one title that I came up with and then a couple titles that just happened in my life. Um, so the first title is An Adulterer Living Among a People of Adultery. Um, on the Google Doc that I wrote this on, it is Sermon 11-12-23. And then when I got the call from Reed and Derek to come do the sermon, I put in my calendar Sermon LOL on November 12th. <laughs> So that is where we are. <laughs> um, you can go to the next slide. Um, as you may have heard from the other interns, we were challenged to make our text the theme of our semester. I discovered that I needed Hosea much more than I thought I did. As it turns out, much more than Hosea needed me. I can't promise you some big revelation or novel idea about the text. I'm not that guy. <laughs> I'm certainly not a prophet. Um, but maybe, as we've learned this semester, God can use those who just come with a heart to speak truth into an otherwise deceived world. I just want to help you get to know the text like I've tried to do, and like me, I want you to allow the space for reflection and change. I hope you'll humor a little nerding out about history. You see, Hosea was a prophet right as the northern kingdom of Israel was entering its downfall. Hosea was from the northern kingdom, which is often referred to as Ephraim. After the, king, after the death of King Jeroboam II in 746 B.C., Israel had six different kings in less than 20 years. Four of them were assassinated. Um, not long after this turbulent period, Assyria invaded and took a lot, of the, a lot of Israel into exile. But how did the Israelites get here? What happened to the people being led through the wilderness who had no choice but to rely on God? They didn't know where they were going or what they were doing, but they knew they had their, they had their savior. The God who led them out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of the hands of their pursuers and captors, they had the God who every day provided the manna, who followed them in the desert in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was like they were a newlywed couple. There aren't a whole lot of things certain about the future, but in that moment, the moment being led from Egypt to the promised land, that was okay. They were finally united. The worries of the world could wait. 
The people were desperately reliant on God and were faithful like a good wife. And God, like a good husband, rewarded their trust by providing them with everything they needed. I know all of us have had different examples of marriage in our lives, so I want to be clear. God is not the short-tempered or controlling or spiteful or abusive husband. God was and is the husband to the people that the role was meant to represent. He is lovingly present. Anytime they begin to lose their way, they were shepherded back. There were hard times and struggles, but eventually they made it. The land set apart for them. It was good. So I ask again, how did we get from that point to where we are now in Hosea? Because this is where we start in Hosea. The Israelites had fallen into unfaithfulness. In Hosea 1, it says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. In chapter 3, it confirms this woman is a prostitute. Hosea is also asked to name his children with the woman in a way that isn't exactly what a parent would choose for themselves. <laughs> One of the children was called Loduhama, which means not loved in Hebrew. Another was called Loami, which means not my people. These weren't exactly the choice names in a culture that believe your name determines your defining quality. God asked Hosea to try to walk a mile in his shoes. To knowingly choose someone unfaithful goes against our nature. To name your children not loved and not my people shows the gravity of the offense in the eyes of God. Something is wrong. What happened to the relationship between God and the people? Everything started so well, but something has changed. Something doesn't seem to match. This is where chapter 2 comes in. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children, because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my food, my water, my wool, and my linen, my olive oil, and my drink. Not exactly the best of starts, but at this point in our series, we've probably come to expect this. In Hosea, God is not portrayed as a king, a ruler, or a shepherd. We are asked to frame God as a husband or a lover. What role does this leave for us? The adulterous wife. Being the wife in Hosea isn't the ideal position, but I don't think God is overjoyed to be this husband either. We've pursued our lovers in many ways. We pursue the things that give us instant gratification or that we see as valuable. For Israel, this meant falling into idolization and literal adultery with shrine prostitutes. I'm talking about adultery of the body and spirit. This is easy to criticize, and of course, we want to shift all the blame onto the people of Israel. After all, we're not bowing down to little statues of wood and stone. But we all share guilt in this relationship. I have come to realize that not all idols are little statues. For my part, I have idolized the security of what others think of me. I'm not special in this, as it's something that all of us struggle with in some way. Over and over again in my life, I have taken good things gifted to me by God, and I have let the anxiety caused by other people's opinions distort them. The first example of my guilt in this relationship comes in my academic career. Without trying to sound prideful, I've always been more academically inclined than my brother. <laughs> I can remember back in elementary school how excited I got to do free rights and learn about history. Learning for the sake of learning and loving it is magical. Grades didn't matter, but I was a smart kid. I was well-behaved and liked by my teachers. I had great friends, and as a measure of my status, 
was one of the fastest kids on the playground. Thank you, thank you. It was good. That as I began to excel in my classes, I also began to wonder what would happen if I didn't succeed. Would my mom get mad at me? Would I stop being one of my teacher's favorites? Would I spiral out of control and be a failure? All normal thoughts of a second grader. Um, yeah, I was an anxious little boy. <laughs> but for the most part, I didn't have to worry about failure. Partly because I hyperfixated on being better than my classmates to the point that I overworked myself, and partly because elementary school science isn't exactly organic chemistry. So the older I got, the more pressure I placed on myself. After all, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If I worried myself until I threw up but still got the A, it wasn't broken. At least that's what I thought. I progressed through the years with my pride and my anxiety growing. I was going after my validation, which had been enough for me in the past, but I wasn't being filled anymore. The anxiety was crushing me. I was bowing down to my idols. In middle school, I no longer felt like the smartest kid in the room. I was slain with thirst. The pressure was building, but I was still chasing after my lover. But I was not yet to the desert. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. God desires us. We hear that sentiment all the time, but please don't just let this roll off your back. God is jealous for us. Like a broken-hearted husband, he is calling out. He has a deep desire to be with us, and yet we turn from him. I think that a lot of people in the Christian community try to use the anger of the prophets as a weapon against the people they deem sinners. It seems a little hypocritical for my liking. I don't think the anger of the prophets comes from a vengeful fist of God. God does not hate us. He did not hate Israel or Judah. The warnings we see are from a husband in anguish. He is begging us over and over again to remember, to remember who he is. So, since we turn away repeatedly, we are walled in. I don't know if God does the punishment firsthand or if he just lets our actions have the consequences they deserve. Maybe those are the same thing, but that's for a greater mind than mine to decide. What I do know is that he is attempting to bring us back to him with love, not push us further away with hate. Going back into high school, my anxiety was at a new personal peak in the worst way. I was in an AP class on top of a lot of other student responsibilities, and I wanted to be the best. The issue is, I was not. I constantly felt behind and like I was walled in and a fraud for being so. This all culminated in an anxious breakdown on the couch with my mom. I crumpled under the weight I put on myself. She had no idea that I was struggling because like everyone else, I needed to make her think I was strong and resilient and a success. I was no longer learning because I wanted to. I was learning because I wanted to achieve. I was undone, laid low. For some reason, trying to be perfect on my own was destroying me. Imagine that. But I'm probably the only one here who's ever tried to do that, right? Yeah. I don't wish that feeling on anyone, but I imagine that it's one some of you know all too well. <laughs> she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain the new wine and oil who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens, my new wine when it is ready. 
I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. Seeing us stumble around trying to find our footing when we're the ones who turn the lights off must be so incredibly frustrating. It's not enough that Israel turned from God, but they used the gifts from God to worship things less than God. They worshiped Baal, a Canaanite nature deity, and lavished offerings on idols. How dare they? Logically, this makes no sense, and yet somehow, we've all done the same thing. How dare we? The end of this path is loss and pain and things that are temporary, and yet my entire life has been this process of choosing over and over again the thoughts of peers over the thoughts of the one who created those peers. I'm playing the part of the adulterous wife well. So I talked about my experience with anxiety related to others' opinions of me academically. But there's another place in my life worth mentioning. For those of you who didn't know, I played soccer. Starting in fifth grade up until college, I played competitively, and even now I play IM games when I can. I played sports my entire childhood, and I tried out baseball and basketball, but they were never my passion. With soccer, I instantly fell in love. Soccer hits me somewhere in the soul that God set apart for our joy. At first, I wasn't the best. I was atrocious, actually. <laughs> but it didn't matter. I loved it. I worked my butt off because I loved it. It was good. But without me knowing, the story began to repeat. I was once again bowing down to my idols. I started getting more competitive. I put in so much effort, but always felt like I was letting my team down. Did they even want me there? Anxiety once again reared its ugly head, and all I could do was sit and watch. Within a matter of years, I had lost some of the wonder from soccer, and slowly, the anxiety surrounding it consumed me. This thing of great joy that God had provided me with had so quickly become a source of either pride for my accomplishments or fear and separation when I inevitably failed. All because I had lost sight of what was important. But I was not yet to the desert. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, declares the Lord. Once again, I found myself trying to be perfect all by myself. And once again, God had to show me how foolish that was. My junior year of high school, I was starting to take my relationship with God seriously. I had an amazing group of guys supporting me, and I was growing so much, but I, but I was still consumed by anxiety, especially when it came to soccer. All of this culminated in a three-week period that I will never forget. I was playing club soccer in the spring, and I was so consumed with the doubts that everyone around me looked down on me that I was a shell. Playing soccer was more likely to make me sick from anxiety than it was to give me a smile. I could barely eat. I was throwing up at some point almost every day. I was losing an unhealthy amount of weight. My fear of letting others down had brought me to rock bottom. My vines were ruined. I was being devoured. The days that I had decked myself in praise for my work ethic, skill, and leadership were out of sight. There was only fear. But God was not absent. 
He was there then like he was there in your hard times. You just need to know where to look. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. Sometimes knowing what to look for can be blocked by a language barrier. I already gave you a little history, but now it's time for a little Hebrew. The word it uses for wilderness in Hebrew is synonymous with desert. This makes sense because to the ancient Hebrew world, the desert was the wilderness. The meaning of this desert isn't necessarily arid and desolate. It more so means abandoned or uninhabited place. But the Hebrew word midbar, which is used for desert, has another meaning. The word midbar is just the word davar, which means word or speech, with an M in front of it. In this case, putting the M in front means place of. We have finally made it to the desert. The wilderness of our lives is not just a place of hardship or a place where we have never gone before. It's the place where God is trying to talk to us most. It's the place of the word. Literally, that is what the language means. It's the place that suits God most for talking to us. Looking back, there were people and things that God was using to talk to me. My family always supported me, whether or not I thought I was living up to the standards or playing well. My close friends went through all of the struggles with me and gave me a place to rest while reminding me of how beautiful soccer was in my life. God was leading me back to him through these and many more experiences. All I had to do was pick my head up. It's easy to believe the sky is falling when you're staring at the ground. He longs for the day that we are back with him in the wilderness relying on him and trusting that he will provide. It may not be in a great pillar of fire or cloud, but in the end, we will only have each other, and it will be good again. In verse 15, when it says, we'll make the valley of a corridor of hope, it's a call for us to look back at the change in our lives. A is a literal valley near Jericho, but it also translates to turbid or dejected. The use of this language is no accident or coincidence. In both scenarios I gave you guys, I relied on myself, and it left me in ruin. I was lost. But once everything I thought I knew was stripped away, God showed me what once was and could be again. I was directionless and afraid to fail at school, but then one of my good friends and mentors, named Nick, told me about his job as a school psychologist, and I felt a strong pull. Maybe that isn't where I end up, but I'm studying psychology right now, and it, it just clicks with me. Like, I just get it. I knew after the first day of general psych last year that I could do so much to glorify God in this field. I love learning again like when I was just a kid. When I let go of trying to perform for everyone else in soccer and stopped convincing myself I had to be the best, I rediscovered the game I love so dearly. I included God in my warm-up and saw the game for what it truly is. Prayer. Now I look back on those days on the pitch with my best friends and I see God's faithfulness. I am not a finished project. Anxiety still controls a lot of my mind. But most importantly, the work is in progress. A little more than in the past, it feels like it must have felt in the wilderness coming out of Egypt. I'm at the mercy of God because I'm helpless on my own. Sometimes I wander off, but like the faithful husband of his people, God leads me by the hand. 
I yearn for the days that God and his people, the lovers in the beginning, are fully reunited, as it was once and will be in the end. I understand that this is a lot, so I want to try to simplify what I'm asking of you. Let go. Stop trying to be everything and don't expect yourself to be perfect. You will fail. Over and over again, you will come up short in some way. But instead of building yourself back in your image, stop and listen. God is speaking through your wilderness and he has already been working in your desert. It may not be school or sports for you, but we all have given something else the title of God at some point. It will never be as whole as it was made to be because you are the one powering it. But, as Derek would say, good news. Where there is death and destruction of your ways, there is room for God to make new growth. If you are in the desert right now, take heart and listen. I don't really know how to end a sermon, but I can't imagine a better way than this. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth. The earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Amen.